What is that? All right, uh, we're going to be in Isaiah 55 in this lesson. And uh, as we go through this text, we're, we're just going to camp out in this text. So in this, the, the first lesson, we looked at a theme that you could kind of track through the Bible. Uh, we're going to just look at this text in Isaiah 55. And uh, let me just ask, maybe from this perspective, to help us think about what we're going to be looking at here. Remember, we're, we're thinking about how the Old Testament gives purpose to the New Testament Christian. Again, when the, when the Christians would have been gathering in the book of Acts to talk about the scriptures, when the, uh, uh, when the Christians in the book of Acts in uh, chapter 17, the Bereans would, were examining the scriptures every day to see if these things were so, it would have been the scrolls of the Old Testament that they would have been looking at. So I think what God intends for the New Testament Christian to do is to go back to the Old Testament to understand what the mission and purpose was. Isaiah 55 is a fabulous text to talk about what our mission is. And let me just ask this question to get us to think about this. Have you responded to or accepted the Lord's invitation? And you might be thinking, well, yeah, I did what people were supposed to do in Acts 2. I repented and I was baptized. Uh, So I've responded to the Lord's invitation. I've done that. Okay, that's good. Like that that a lot of people needed to do that, like we all need to do that. Maybe you're thinking, well, there's one time after a sermon when I was invited to come forward if I had any needs, and I did that, and that's good because we need the, the body of Christ to help us with our struggles and things like that. But let me ask it from this perspective. Have you responded to the Lord's invitation from an Old Testament prophetic perspective? Isaiah 55 is a chapter where we see this marvelous invitation that God is giving us. Now, before we read this chapter, let's just set up the context. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah deal primarily with judgment. The nation of Israel is going to be judged, and the reason for that is because of idolatry. Idolatry, as many of us are probably familiar with, is just the concept of taking something and putting it above God. In your devotion and in your thought and in... Uh, like your pursuits. It's anything that you can put above God. So the nation of Israel were worshiping Baal and Molech and all of these other kinds of gods. And so God says, you're all going to be destroyed because of that. But beginning around Isaiah 40, we get at this change where some of the first words in Isaiah 40 say to comfort, comfort my people. It's going to be comfort now. And the reason is because there's going to be this servant of the Lord that will come And comfort and bless the people. Isaiah 52 and 53 talks about this servant that who by his wounds we get healed. It's the famous Isaiah 53 passage. Isaiah 55 is the invitation that that suffering servant gives. Just a couple chapters later. So Isaiah 55, let's go ahead and read the chapter. It's not a very long chapter. But Isaiah 55, uh, 1 to 13. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without price and without money. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, 
And a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish for which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. You might have noticed the thorns and briar stuff there connected to the curses. We'll talk about that towards the end of the lesson. But, but what Isaiah's doing in this, in this, he's basically painting a scene in the first four or three verses or so. You can imagine in, ver- in the first three verses, Isaiah keeps saying, come, come, come. You can imagine this from the perspective, like the cry of a salesman who has a booth in this busy marketplace. That's the kind of what he's picturing here. And so he's telling all of these people, come over here, come to me and buy what I have to offer. Now, you can notice, notice his business model as he's calling everybody to himself. We learn that the people he's inviting are people who are thirsty. Well, that's a pretty good business model to start because it's people that have a need, right? If you want to start a business, you have to find a need and then meet the need. But notice the other quality of these people that he's inviting. They don't have any money. Does that seem like a good business model or a bad business model? Uh, You guys got a big need, but no money, but I want you to come and make this transaction with me. Like this doesn't make much sense, but what he's doing is he's going to give these needy people things without cost. Imagine this again from the perspective of like a fair where there's booths and stuff like that. Have you ever gone to like a state fair and uh, people are handing out things that are free and the free things are never good quality. Like it's like plastic cups that break really easily or keychains that break like as soon as the kids start playing with it or whatever like here this this man that has this booth is not offering bad things he's offering wine and milk like milk was a delicacy wine in the old testament was a way of picturing like new testament blessings by the way um just a little side point remember in john 2 jesus's first miracle turning water to wine what was the purpose of that well, most parties uh, would start out with the good, or the, the, the best quality wine and then they would throw out the other stuff like the cookies and crackers that weren't as good quality afterwards. And so the party would diminish with time. Jesus comes and he restores the good stuff. He gives them the good stuff towards the end of the party, showing that a relationship with Jesus always gets better and better and the joys always get better and better. So when it says that he's offering wine and milk, he's saying the joys and the blessings and the luxurious blessings that this man is going to give are going to be given to homeless people. Basically, they don't have anything. Uh, Try to imagine for a moment that you went to like a a kindergarten room and you brought filet mignon. And the other thing that you brought was like 
uh, some cheap chocolate chip cookies. All right, what are the kids going to go after? They're always going to go after the chocolate chip cookies when they could have the filet mignon. So Isaiah, this guy that has this booth, is seeing this happen. So he's looking down at the other booths and he's saying he's trying to reason with the people saying, why are you wasting your money on that stuff? I can give you the good stuff and it's all free. What is Isaiah picturing here? In verse uh, three, he says to go for these things so that your soul may live. In verse 7, he says that God will abundantly pardon. What's going on here is Isaiah is using this kind of like food imagery to talk about the spiritual malnourishment of the people that he's trying to reason with. Remember, the nation of Israel in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah were steeped in idolatry. Um, Which means that the nation of Israel, we know from the first chapter of Isaiah that the nation of Israel would still go to the temple. They'd still worship God. God was still part of their life, kind of. But then during the week, things other than God meant more to them. And so the most subtle kind of idolatry, I think, is when you take something that's not inherently wrong and then it becomes too important to you. You ever known people that did that? You ever been that person? Does that describe anybody here that like, you know, I come to church, I, I, I appear to be religious in some ways, but really when you get down to brass tacks during the, the, during the week, the things that mean more to me than anything else is not God. Uh, it's my reputation, it's my family, it's other things that can be inherently fine. When I was in Minnesota and I was first starting to preach, there was an older guy at a church that approached me and he, uh, he's the one who said this, so... It's not me. He said this. He said, Eric, do you know why there's so many old cranky people in this world? And I said, no, I don't know. But I really want to know what your answer to that is because I don't want to become one of them. And so in referencing Ecclesiastes 11 and 12, he said, well, the reason why there's old cranky people in the world is because in their youth, they didn't remember their creator. And I said, well, what do you what do you mean by that? And he said, well, When people in their youth enjoy their youth, and it's okay to enjoy your youth, you've got all this strength and you've got better memory maybe, you've got all kinds of freedoms that you don't necessarily have when you get older. Like you have the kind of flexibility to make all kinds of things your idol. And when you get older, those idols start to get taken away from you. So for example, let's say that I make sports my idol. Uh, I remember I'm a really big Philadelphia Eagles fan. I've been an an Eagles fan before they won the Super Bowl Uh, back in 2001 when I was like 11 years old when I became a fan of theirs. But I remember the New York Giants was always like the team that the Eagles were like rivals with along with the Cowboys and stuff like that uh, and the Redskins. And so Tiki Barber was the running back for the Giants from like the late 90s to the mid 2000s. And I don't know if you guys remember this, but he retired. And then like a year later, he wanted to get back into the game at age 34 And in an interview, he said, I need the game. I need the game. And since he couldn't play anymore, he was getting frustrated because age had stripped away his abilities. What if you make a relationship and put that above God? Uh, People, as time goes on, sometimes have to get buried six feet because they pass away. You make a relationship more important. What about your education and your intelligence? 
Uh, as you get older, from what I understand, you, your recall isn't always what it used to be. So if you make intelligence and your memory the thing that matters the most to you, it gets, starts to get stripped away from you. Why are there old cranky people? Why, are, why is it the case that the nation of Israel is so spiritually impoverished? It's because they thought they could be fed by the cookies when all along God was allowing them to have the filet and young that they didn't want. Notice, by the way, the breadth of the offer in verse one. God says everyone is invited to this. Everybody can come. When companies are hiring people, what do they look for in their potential employees? Well, we want you to have a good education. We want you to be like have everything together, right? Then God says, when I'm inviting people, I want impoverished people. I want anybody that's willing to take me up on this. I don't care what your background is. I don't care where, where you grew up. I don't care how you grew up. Anybody's welcome to come into this, but there's an expiration date. If you look at verse six, he says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. What does that mean? That there's going to come a time where God is not near anymore and this offer will be removed from the table. Since moving to Santee, California, which is really just a suburb of San Diego, so it's easier for me to just say San Diego. So since I moved to San Diego... Samantha and I, my wife, we've gotten coupon booklets in the mail for like Mexican restaurants. And since moving to San Diego, I, I finally know what good Mexican food is. Speaking of food, because this text is dealing with food in some ways. So I just had to say that. And so like there's times where we've gotten coupon booklets and I look at this burrito and I'm like, oh man, that looks good. And we like clip it out and we're going to use that later. And then a couple weeks go by and the expiration date has passed us. But since it's still worth it, we spend the full price on it. In this text, when is it the case that the offer would be removed from the table? Now, there's obvious answers to that, like when you pass away, right? Like the offer's off the table at that point. Uh, Or when the Lord returns, that's an obvious answer. But what about Hebrews chapter 6? In Hebrews chapter 6, it talks about people who, as they continually harden their heart, they get to a point where the text actually says... Nothing will bring them back to repentance. Now, there's debates on what all that means. But one thing we can be sure about is that if you're in that state, ever coming back to repentance is going to be quite difficult. You ever known anybody who kept getting the invitation of the Lord who ke- and the Lord kept saying through the preaching of the gospel and things like that, that you can have the rich blessings. But you keep going after video games. You keep going after all of these things, not that things that aren't inherently wrong, but they mean too much to you and they're not giving you what what you thought they would. Uh, You keep that up long enough and you might get to a point where the whole idea of repenting is just going to be too impossible for you to do. Well, what is the uh, what's the catch to this rule? So like here, God is going to give us freely really good food. Like that sounds like a sweet deal. What's the catch? The text still says that you have to buy the wine and the milk. It's not going to be with money, but it means that there's still going to be this transaction happening. So how does the transaction happen? In verse 2, he says to listen diligently. In verse 3, he says to incline your ear. So that means that these rich blessings are not taken in with your mouth. They're taken in with your ears. Because it's the stuff that God has revealed in Scripture. That's the good stuff is what he's saying here. Uh, Does this sound like anything else Jesus ever said? Remember in Matthew 11 where he says, 
Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and what's the next word? Learn from me, and I'll give you rest. By the way, do you know what the next story is in Matthew 12? It's a story about the Sabbath. Jesus is showing in the context, if we ignore the chapter divisions, that Jesus is the Sabbath. Like, true rest is found in him, if you will but listen to him. As a preacher, I feel like one of the uh, applications that I have to give in sermons a lot is that we've got to study our Bible. So I'll do this again. We have to study our Bible. Like, we've got to be in the Word. Like, have you, have you ever used the excuse that I don't have the time? But then you spend, like, at least an hour a day on Facebook. Like, checking your phone periodically. Like, what if we were to read our... Like, every time we checked our phone, instead of, like, checking all these other things... What if we were like reading like the short chapters of the book of Psalms or something like that? Like there's all kinds of opportunities around us to be getting into the word. You listen diligently and then you're taking in the good stuff. But in this text, it's not just that you're listening. Go down to verse seven again. In verse seven, it says, as you're listening, basically, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. It's not just that you're listening. Uh if you ever had periods of your life where you were listening, listening, listening and reading the Bible and stuff, but you, at the same time, like you weren't getting rid of the things in your life that shouldn't have been there here. Isaiah is saying that as you're listening, you've got to give up your thoughts and your ways. In fact, you have to forsake them. Do you like your thoughts and your ways? I like my thoughts and I like my ways. Like in California, we're meeting all kinds of people that didn't grow up at all knowing anything about the Bible. And uh, people that have never grown up with really even parents that were telling them like this is kind of the direction and instruction you need in your life. They've had to kind of like develop their own thoughts and their own philosophies and their own ways at looking at the world. And then you start studying with people and you're like, okay, well, let's start studying one of the Gospels or whatever. And you sit down and you go, well, actually, the way that you were thinking about that's not exactly what God says about this. And they go, well, I really like what I've developed. I like the ways that I think about things. And I like the way that I'm living. Like, I don't want God to get that detailed into my heart. Isaiah is saying that, yes, you listen, but there also has to be this giving up of other things. Now, what's ever going to motivate somebody to do that? Imagine that you're sitting across the table from somebody and saying, all right, you've got to stop doing the things that you're doing. You've got to stop thinking the things that you're thinking. You've got to let the Lord take control of your life. Well, why would I want him to do that? I like my life. The way that it is in this text in verses eight and nine. Look at how it begins in verse eight Four. that little three letter word means because. Why do we do this? Because God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are not our ways. What's he saying in this context? You know, how I've heard these verses get used before, like some terrible tragedy happens. And then people say, God's ways and God's thoughts are not our ways and our thoughts. We don't understand why the tsunamis came. We don't understand why the tornadoes ripped through Alabama. We don't, God's ways and thoughts are not ours. We can't understand him. In this text, Isaiah is actually saying the opposite. We're never going to know all the mind of God. But what he's saying in this context is the reason you should give up your thoughts and your ways is because God's are way better than yours. And you can upgrade your thoughts and your ways by developing God's. This is actually the sales pitch on why it's worth giving up everything. So imagine again, you're sitting across the table from somebody and they say, well, why should I give up my thoughts and my ways? Because you're not as wise as you think you are. I mean, you figure out how to say that in the best way possible. 
But you say that God is the creator of the world and he knows what you need. And it's not as intuitive to you as you think it is. We can illustrate it like this. When you were 20 years old, did you look back on your 15-year-old self and go, man, at 15, I was such a fool. And then when you turned 30, did you look back at your 20-year-old self and go, when I was 20, I was such a fool. And then when you turned 40, did you look back at your 35-year-old self and go, I was such a fool. Hypothetically, if you live till you're 90, you'd look back at your 85-year-old self and go, I was such a fool. If you lived till you were 120 years old, you would look back at your 110-year-old self and say, I was such a fool. You know what that means? There's a sense in which at every age of our life, we're, we're foolish. And what I mean by that is not like the Proverbs kind of fool, not in that kind of way. But there's a sense in which we're always needing advice from outside of ourselves because we can't make it on our own. And Isaiah is saying, you give up your thoughts and your ways and you can have the good stuff, but the transaction's worth it. That's what it means to buy, to buy the good stuff. Well, what's the outcome? What does God do with somebody who indeed makes this transaction? Like what's, what's, what is the end goal that he does with these kind of people? Like look at two times in this text in verse three, you see the word everlasting towards like the middle of the verse. And then in verse 13, he talks towards the end of the verse about an everlasting sign. Two times in this text, Isaiah says that if you make this transaction, God's going to make something everlasting out of you. And by the way, just like, it's kind of like a little test. Let's say that I make my education, my sports, my beauty, all of these things that age can start to take away from me. If I make those my God, will those gods give me anything everlasting? Maybe a couple years, maybe. God says that I'm going to make something everlasting out of you if you make this transaction. There's all kinds of movies and books where people are seeking immortality and stuff like that. Here the Bible is saying that God can give that to you. In, the, in all the best ways possible. Well, what, what's the first thing that he's going to give us that's everlasting? Look at verse um, 3 towards the middle of the verse where it says, And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Here's the first thing that God is going to make. He's going to make an everlasting covenant. Now, when I first became a Christian, the way that I used to hear covenants be described is like, you know, if you buy a car on credit... You buy a car on credit and then you make the payments and then you get to keep the car, right? That's kind of like a covenant. You sign the contract. The problem with that is that the Bible doesn't use the word contract. They uses the word covenant. Well, what's a covenant? We sing a hymn called uh, Give Me the Bible. When part of the song says law and love combining. You know what a covenant is? A covenant is when you've got rules but it's not just rules like when you get a car. It's part of that. But it also involves like loyalty and love. So here's what God is saying. I'm going to make with you an everlasting covenant. Uh, this means that God's going to enter into this relationship with you that's going to last forever. But wh who's used as an example of what kind of covenant it's going to be? Look at Isaiah 55 verse uh, 4. When at the end of verse three, he says, my steadfast, your love for David. And then he says, behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the people. So David is an example of the kind of covenant God's going to make with us. Well, what, what kind of covenant did God make with David? Well, David 
listened to the good things God had to offer. And then God sets David up as this leader and commander of the people. Recently, I just got done teaching through um, First and Second Samuel. Have you guys ever thought about, we said a little bit about this in the previous lesson, but all of the Gentiles that were associated themselves with David, besides Uriah the Hittite, can you guys think of any other Gentiles that associated themselves with David? Yeah, well, he, there are some senses in which he, he sort of blessed them in some ways. But yeah, uh, I mean, certainly those people did, did respect him. But like Ittai the Gittite was one of his military commanders. Like if you just read through First and Second Samuel, like try to notice the theme of Gentiles that were attracted to David. So here's what, here's what God did with David. David listened to God and God glorified David and then set him up as somebody who then people were attracted to. Now, have you ever had that kind of experience? Have you experienced Isaiah 55 in your workplace where you've been making that transaction with God? You've been listening to the things that he has to say. And because of that, God has glorified you like the text says. He's made you into a person of substance like you're not a shallow thinker. Like you, there's something deeper about you. There's something, there's a joy that's deep within you. And then people start looking at you and they go, why are you different? Because the way that you handle adversity is different. The way that you talk to about the boss is different. The way that you handle your whole conduct is different. And then you've become the Bible answer person in your workplace. Everybody knows that they go to you when they have a problem. Well, why does that happen? Whether or not we've even understood what Isaiah 55 was talking about before, what God is doing with us is Isaiah 55. We've been making that transaction. He glorifies us and makes us into this everlasting covenant where we will be used to attract the Gentiles. Now, that's the first time everlasting is used. Look at the second time in verses 12 and 13. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. So this is the second time everlasting sign. Uh, thorns and briars are in verse 12. You know, when thorns and briars are first introduced in the Bible in Genesis three, thorns and briars like become this representation of the curses. But thorns and briars also start to become a way that people are described. Again, in First and Second Samuel with David, you see the phrase worthless people all over the place, like people that are described as thorns and briars. When you think of a thorn or a briar, I don't know if you guys have ever worked with roses and flowers and stuff like that, but in Minnesota, we had all kinds of thorns and briars. Like it's like nine months of winter and then like three months of mosquitoes. And... Uh, the months of the mosquitoes also have lots of thorns and briars that grow up all over the place. And my hands would get cut up whenever I'd be outside playing a lot. Thorns and briars are things that hurt people. Did you ever used to be that kind of person? You had a brash personality. You'd say things without thinking. You weren't thoughtful about the sensitivities of other people around you. And you were just kind of like a thorny sort of briar sort of person. Well, as people make this transaction with God, God starts to take away the thorns and briars because they're no longer cursed anymore. And in verse 12 and 13, he makes them into a cypress or a myrtle tree. Have you ever seen pictures of cypresses and myrtles? 
these big, beautiful, gorgeous things that wouldn't hurt anybody. In fact, they can be used for like shade for people and stuff like that. Um, in verse 13, these trees that God is setting up that make a name for the Lord, it says that they're going to be an everlasting sign. Does anybody have a different translation at the end of verse 13 where it doesn't say everlasting sign? What other translations do you guys have? You, same translation. Does anybody have, have a different one? I think the New American Standard uses the word memorial. If you use the net translation, the N-E-T, it will actually use the word monument. So an everlasting sign, an everlasting memorial, an everlasting monument. Think about that idea. I grew up in Minnesota, and um, South Dakota is where Mount Rushmore is. It's a monument in honor of four dead dudes, but I don't even remember who the guys are. In 1999, I went to Washington, D.C. with my family, and we saw, like, the Washington Monument. We saw the big statue of Abraham Lincoln. Like, there's monuments all over the place there, right? What's the purpose of a monument? The purpose of a monument is to remember some event or some person. Like, uh, I went to St. Louis a couple years ago, and they have the big archway thing to remember the westward expansion of the United States. Here's the question. In the Old Testament, did God ever leave monuments? The Israelites crossed the Jordan River. They set up the 12 stones, right? Uh, Samuel delivers the people as, by making a sacrifice to God, and they raise up the stone and call it Ebenezer. In the New Testament, has Jesus left monuments? Have you ever noticed that Jesus doesn't say, make a big statue in my honor, make me a big pyramid, that'll be my thing. Like, he doesn't say, leave all the Ten Commandments and all the courthouses everywhere. Like, what he says is this, my monuments will be living, breathing, walking people. It's a monument unlike any other you've ever seen. Do you know what your mission and your purpose and your identity is? You are a living, breathing, walking monument. So when you go to school, you go to work, you're around your non-Christian family. Your mission and your purpose is to no longer be a thorn or a briar. It's to show that the fruit of the Spirit has been growing in your life and God has made you into somebody different. And as people see that kind of thing, they start to have questions. Well, why is God doing that in your life? Can God do that in my life? And you go, yeah, uh, because the Gentiles are not being attracted to me. Now, you might be looking at all this and going, well... There's no way that God could really do that with me. Like, I understand there's like some Christians that this seems to, like zeal just kind of seems to land on them. And uh, it just kind of comes naturally for some Christians. But there's no way, like, I'm not really a super Christian, so I can't really be that kind of person. Look at verses 10 and 11 again. Just as the rain and the snow fall down from heaven and they do its work, God's word will do its job. In San Diego, uh, I've learned that the same, it's the same kind of climate as the nation of Israel, like in the promised land and in the Bible. So we have the early rains and the latter rains and stuff like that. So I, I'm starting to understand more of those biblical pictures. California is, it's not like all green. It's a lot of it is desert. Southern California, at least there's a lot of desert. And whenever it rains, I just know that within days, the mountains are going to be green and it's gorgeous. Like you just, as surely as the rain has fallen, it will become green. As surely as you listen to the scriptures and take it in seriously, God will make you into this kind of person. But it's not just that 
you take in the words that come down from heaven that we have in the form of the Bible now, but the word of God, Jesus Christ, came down from heaven. And if you enter into a covenant with him, he will turn you into that kind of person, make you a monument that declares his glory. I uh, thank you again for your good attention. Um,